You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. or like undoing the thing that he's trying to do. It's in the book of Exodus. It's just far enough into the Bible that most of you are familiar with the story. Once we get too far into Leviticus, a lot of people give up. <laughs> uh, but right there at the beginning in Exodus, God wants to free his people, who are the Hebrews, and their slaves, and they are stuck in slavery by Pharaoh, the leader of the Egyptians. And God raises up a prophet named Moses, and he tells Moses, I'm going to give you some words, and like a prophet, you're going to go and speak them out. So I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to tell him, let my people go, or there will be this plague that comes upon you. And so he goes and tells Pharaoh... Uh, exactly what God said. Hey, Pharaoh, just so you know, God's sending a plague unless you let his people, the Hebrews, the slaves that you've acquired, unless you let them go. And Pharaoh is pretty full of pride. He's not going to let them go. In fact, Pharaoh himself pretty much thinks that he's a god in flesh because that's the way that they treated the Pharaohs back then, is that they thought, same goes even into Rome. All these leaders in ancient times, like we think of separation of church and state, throughout history, the state considered themselves religion. Caesar was religion. He was a god in their eyes. Pharaoh was religion. He was a god in their eyes. So when this god of Moses comes up against Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's like, I'm a god too, you're going to come against me? Well, Pharaoh's not going to take that. And so the plague comes. Something strange happens. Pharaoh's magicians actually are able to recreate the plague. Using their magical occult arts, they go so far as to recreate what God has done. And so Pharaoh's thinking to himself, he's pretty smug, like, yeah, you thought your God could come up against me? Look, my magicians can do the same thing that you did, Moses. Real cool of you. And so he doesn't let God's people go. And they come back again, and they do, Moses does another plague. He says, let God's people go. And he does this plague. But then the magicians recreate it again. And now Pharaoh's pretty smug about himself. Oh, yeah, you're so great, Moses. I can do the same thing you can do. Look, my magician's got it covered. But as time goes on, these things start to amp up. To the point that the magicians can't meet it. And they're starting to wonder, like, who is this God of Moses? This Yahweh figure. Like, he's, he's actually, this God is capable of doing things that our magicians can't recreate. He's more powerful. And Pharaoh starts to get bugged. <laughs> if you know the plagues, that's a good joke. Wow. He, starts to, he starts to get bugged by the plagues. And he starts to, okay, all right, all right, I will let your people go if you just stop it. And Moses is like, okay, I'll go intercede on your behalf and say, 
God, Pharaoh said he'll let the people go if you would let the plague go. And that's exactly what Moses goes to do. The plague stops. And then something that maybe you're quite familiar with, when the pain goes away, suddenly your heart hardens again. You're like, eh, I can deal with this, whatever. So God stops the plague, but then Pharaoh has his heart hardened. And this is where it's confusing, because it's going to keep amping up. And time and time again, Pharaoh is going to continue to harden his heart. But the Bible tells us something more. Pharaoh is uh, not the one necessarily hardening his heart. God is doing it. Sometimes it's very specific. Yahweh, the Lord, hardened Pharaoh's heart. Which is so strange. So strange. Because isn't the point for him to soften his heart? Why would, why would God harden him? And so these plagues go back and forth, and God continues to show his power. God shows that he's not just like a better God than Pharaoh. God shows that he's not just like a better God with better abilities that he can cast through his prophets. God goes so far as to show like the Egyptians, your gods are nothing compared to me. They respond to me. They, they are, they are my, I'm in control of them. So for example, one of the plagues is they wake up and everything is complete darkness. There's nothing. Does anybody know what the sun was in Egyptian culture? Is it the Ra? Yeah. Ra. It's, it's a god. So they continue to go through these plagues and one day they wake up. And the thing that they've always called a god that raises up in one side every morning and goes to death on the other side just to be resurrected the next day to die again, to be resurrected the next day to die again, over and over again. This is a story the Egyptians had about Ra, the sun god. One day, Ra doesn't wake up. It's just dark. And now they're thinking to themselves, who is this Yahweh? That he's even greater than Ra. And scholars have connected some of the other plagues to attacks on other Egyptian gods as well. Who is this God of Moses? And will Pharaoh soften his heart? Time and time again, the plagues amp up. Pharaoh says, okay, I'll let them go. And as soon as God stops the plague, Pharaoh hardens his heart. And this is the repetition for plague after plague. Until finally one plague hits him so hard that he just, he's done. It's like, all right, get the Hebrews out of here. I don't want to see them ever again. And so the Hebrews leave. But then God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh, after he's let them go, chases them down. They get to this sea. The sea opens. Moses and all of the Hebrew slaves, who were once slaves but now liberated, walk across the sea, and as Pharaoh, who thinks he's a god, who thinks he's a king, who thinks he has all these magical abilities, who thinks he's better than Yahweh, Pharaoh and his army enter into the sea, the sea collapses on them, and they die. So what is going on here? On one side of things, God is constantly calling Pharaoh out, let my people go. And whenever Pharaoh decides to let God's people go, he then hardens his heart so he won't. 
I'll pause for a minute because a lot of us have read this story before and might have asked a teacher somewhere, what do you do with this? Has anybody ever heard a good response that was of value to you? Okay, if not, I'm just curious. Always looking for a good answer. Well, when I was in college, a better answer than the ones I've been giving before was this idea that uh, the Hebrews believed that, of course, God is responsible for everything. So if Pharaoh's hardening his heart, since God is responsible for all things, the way that they would write that down in Scripture is actually God hardening his heart. Which is great and all, but like, how would we know that that was a cultural thing? Like, as opposed to like, we just write that off today? Like, I, I don't know where culture and, and that would end, because the verse is pretty clear over and over again. Let me give you what I actually think is going on here. And this matters to our passage in Romans today, and it matters to... Uh, it matters to understanding some of the ways in which God works. Because we often get stuck on stories like this. Like, is Pharaoh just, like, predestined for hell? Is Pharaoh predestined for judgment? Like, from the beginning of time, was God always planning on just, like, there's going to be that guy and I'm going to take him out? Like, what's going on here? Even when he tries to get it right, I'm going to harden his heart. Here's an answer that a Bible scholar named Michael Heiser, whom I really love, gave. And I think it makes sense of everything here. And I'm going to tweak his answer a little bit, so I guess it wouldn't completely be... He might slap me for saying he gave it, I guess, in case I'm tweaking it too much. But as Pharaoh is growing up and becoming this Pharaoh, this tyrant, he has a lot of decisions to make. I'm always talking about this, this, this mix of free will and God's sovereignty. A lot of people go full sovereignty, a lot of people go full free will. I'm the kind of person who's not bothered by both. I, I can see them both working in tandem. And one of the ways in which I think we see the free will of Pharaoh right here is he made bad decisions over time. Like this guy was a bad guy. And we forget that a lot of times. Partially because we're so far removed from it. It was thousands of years ago. But also partially because we hear this story all the time. For example, you hear the story of the cross all the time, right? Does that still affect you every time you hear about the cross like it did the first time? I remember the first time Jericho heard about the cross, she was in tears, bawling her eyes out. We talked about even getting her like a necklace with the cross on it, and she was afraid of it. Because so much pain, so much hurt, so much difficulty right there. That's a, that's a different experience of, of hearing the story of the cross. But the more you hear it over and over and over and over again, the more used to it you become, to the point that, like, oh yeah, the cross, yep. The cross, yep. I mean, a guy had nails go through his hand after being flogged and was hung up there to die. It's bad. The same is true with Pharaoh, right? Oh yeah, Pharaoh, Exodus, leaving Egypt, yeah. No, it was bad. Pharaoh was bad. The Hebrews used to have it good in the land of Egypt because at one point, Joseph became the second in command to an old Pharaoh. 
And everybody loved Joseph. And as Joseph had kids, more Hebrews came into Egypt. And probably part of Joseph's family also came and lived with him in Egypt. But as the Egyptian, sorry, as the Hebrews continued to grow in Egypt, Pharaoh got scared. And this is the same kind of racism that still happens today, where we see another race, and as it begins to populate in our area, suddenly people are like, oh, what's going to happen? That's the same kind of racism that, that Pharaoh had in his heart. Why are the Hebrews taking over here? There's so many of them. What, we need to do something. And if that sounds crazy, that is still today. I remember 9-11 when I was sitting in my science classroom in middle school, and they brought in the TV, they rolled it out, and they put it up on a screen, and we're just trying to process what happened. The next thing I know, uh, parents are coming in and taking their children out of the school. And I'm like, why? This is in New York. Like, why, why, are, people, why are people leaving the school? And I come to find over time that we're 30 minutes from Dearborn, which is, I think, the most Arabic populated city in all of the United States, or at least it was at the time. And that was the, the racism fear. We found out the people who crashed into this building were Middle Eastern, and we live by these Middle Easterns, so they're all going to just revolt and come kill us. That's what they're thinking. That's how Pharaoh's thinking, with a racist mind. These Hebrews, they're, they're increasing in our land. Who knows what they're going to do? Let's take care of them. Let's turn them into slaves. That's bad thinking. And so Pharaoh turns all the Hebrews into slaves, and he... he does these horrible things to them. Like, it's not just like, a, well, we're just going about living in these houses and just trying to get by as slaves. No, it's like whipping. It's like pain. It's like people dying. It's like any kind of degree that you can think of slavery. Racism meaning slavery. Same thing happens, in a sense, with Nazi Germany, right? A political leader has a racist attitude towards the Jews, and now the Jews are maybe not turned into slaves in a sense, but the racism pushes them all into concentration camps where horrible experiments happen and a bunch of them die. And let's not just point the finger somewhere else, let's point it at ourselves. That's the American story. The empire of American Babylon was built on the back of black slaves, whom, in our racism, we pulled them over, and then we made them do hard tasks and did all of these horrible things to them. That's our story. It's not just someone else's story. The story of Babylon, the story of empire, the story of Pharaoh and Egypt comes up over and over again throughout history. And the worst place that we can find it is in our hearts. And if we're not willing to see it there, we'll become like Pharaoh. Where we see someone else's lesser and we afflict them to incredible degrees. So the Hebrew slaves are now building all of Egypt. They are the backs upon which Egypt is built. But it goes beyond that. Gets to this point where Pharaoh's like, okay, to all of my, uh, uh, oh, I forgot the word. What's the midwife? I got, it. I got it. To all my midwives, when you're going to the Hebrews and you find out that they're pregnant. I want you to go ahead and do the tricks that you do. Figure out if it's male or female while it's still in the womb. And if it's male, I want you to kill it. Uh, that sounds weird to us because we think of trying to determine sex of a, a, a baby based on technology. But for them, 
And just think of like all the old wives' tales that we have about the same thing, right? Well, if it leads to the left, it must be a blankety blank. I don't know the details, but that's the same kind of thing that they had in their time. Ways in which they tried to tell while still in the womb, is this male or is this female? And if it was male, then they would take part in the earliest forms of abortion that we can think of. It's essentially sorcery, witchcraft. They would take the certain right kind of mixes of drugs and then give it to these Hebrew women. And as they consumed it, it would make their womb so unhealthy that it would result in a miscarriage. So not only are they afflicting through hard, hard labor on the Hebrews that Pharaoh's putting this on, but they're also killing their babies. They're forcing them into abortions. And if the baby's born and then you discover that it's a boy after, well, you're just supposed to kill it on sight. Can you imagine? And if it's a girl, well, you can keep, keep the girls. And we can only imagine for what horrible reasons you would do that. This is Pharaoh. This is not a good guy. So why does God harden his heart every time he softens his heart? Here's the answer that I think we have. God, watching Pharaoh's progression, seeing how bad he has become, God makes an ultimatum judgment on his life. And the ultimatum judgment is death. God has made the ultimatum, I am not going to forgive Pharaoh. He is sentenced to hell. He is sentenced to judgment for all the crimes in which he's committed. So instead, though, instead of just like Pharaoh went to bed and he died in his sleep, God did not see that as like grand enough of vengeance in his mind. The liberation of the Hebrews, God wanted it to be much grander than that, much bigger than that. He wanted to tell a story to a bunch of Hebrews who didn't even know who Yahweh was. He wanted to show them in this time who he was. Actually, the Bible talks about how God wanted to kind of use the story of Exodus for his glory. And a lot of times we're always acting like, why, why doesn't God just take care of evil right there on the spot? Well, here's an example from one case. As strange as it is to us, God wanted, uh, wanted Pharaoh to continue to show his arrogance, to show his pride, so God could keep knocking him down a level. And every time that Pharaoh got to the point of wanting to uh, try to soften his heart, God would then step in and, no, you don't get that privilege. You missed your opportunity. This is not like a negotiation. I'm using this story for my glory. And you have already had the death sentence on your life. So in that sense, it's not necessarily that Pharaoh was like predestined for this to happen from the beginning of time. But at some point, God decided that there was no going back and predestined this moment. That Pharaoh, through the way in which God carried out his vengeance, a vengeance that Paul tells us no human being ever carries out on anyone else. That is not the Christian way. Why? Because vengeance is the Lord's, mine I will repay. That's what God says. And Paul would look at a story like this and be like, that, that was a time where God carried out vengeance, where he repaid vengeance in the way that only God can. And God cannot be immoral, cannot mess up, well, as humans can. Why is Pharaoh offered a chance to let the people go and then hardened? 
It's so God can tell a more glorious story of liberation for the slaves who have been afflicted, slaves who have gone through so much pain. And Jesus, of course, teaches us the peaceable ways of fighting as humans. But if God decides to step in in his own way in some of these stories, that is up to him as to how he handles that. Now, this brings us into Romans 9, which I know it's easy when you're reading a whole chapter to tune out, but please try to listen. I'm going to stop every few verses to just kind of zoom in a little bit. Uh, but uh, a lot of times we read Romans 9 and we think that God has predestined all who go to heaven and all who go to hell ever since the beginning of time. And stories like Pharaoh's, when we read it in that way, tend to feed this ideology. But I don't think that's what Paul's getting at here. I think we just saw in the example of Pharaoh, a man who had free will and used it wrongly. Over and over and over and over again to the point that God decided judgment was going to come on his life in this way. It's not that God's not forgiving. It's not that God's not loving. But in this particular case, the death was declared beforehand and then carried out in a way that took uh, a little bit to, to show the glory of God. So here's Romans 9. Here's what Paul says. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow an unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Pause there for a moment. What has much of the book of Romans been about? It's been about the fact that God is now reaching the Gentiles, and it's about the theology that we need to understand more clearly as to why God is more than just the God of the Hebrews, but the God of everyone who he decides to select, to elect into his kingdom. That as God looks out over the whole world and sees those who are fit for his kingdom, who live lives that are appropriate to his kingdom, and he beckons them in. That is God's evangelism. Through us, as we go and declare the good news, the gospel to the world, people hear it. And then God opens their ears. If they should hear it to the distance that they should come into the faith. That's what Paul's been talking about, about how the Gentiles are getting in. God is choosing those who should come in. And Paul is in so much pain because he is an Israelite and his family all around him his whole life has been Israelite. And he has a lot of friends, a lot of Pharisees, because he is a Pharisee. A lot of friends and Pharisees, family, who are not coming to Jesus. And that hurts him so much to the point that he says, God, you know, like, almost like destined me for hell if, if somehow, if I can make a trade in heaven, bring, bring my family in and, and, and put me in hell instead. That's how like longing Paul is for his friends and family to get saved. Maybe that's something that you yourself was uh, not going to be the greatest guy, but God put up with him. 
And though Jacob deceived a bunch of people, tricked a bunch of people, eventually God gave Jacob his just desserts. When Jacob met his uncle, who deceived and tricked Jacob so much, that you see Jacob eventually gets to this point of like, maybe I should grow up. <laughs> Jacob spends 20 years being tricked and deceived by the end of it. So it's not that God has no grace, because look at the schmoes that he puts up with throughout the, the story of Genesis. All right, what shall I say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. He, Paul, here's your question. Like, how can God choose some and not others? Is that injustice? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, of compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will, but exer or, or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Again, you cannot save yourself. You did not come to the faith. God invited you to the faith. You did not one day discover Jesus. God opened you, opened your eyes to see Jesus and gave you the chance to choose him. That's free will, and that's God giving invitation and working out his sovereignty. The both happening at the same time, not just one or the other. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul just told us why Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God. Let me read that again. Paul quotes, For this very purpose I have raised Pharaoh up, that I might show my power in Pharaoh, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Why does God constantly harden Pharaoh's heart? It's to tell a bigger story through Pharaoh's disobedience has been judged by the way in which Pharaoh has acted. Almost done. You will then say to me, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has a potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Pause. He's still talking about Pharaoh. There's a lot of uh, analogies throughout the Old Testament and in Jewish literature about God as a potter and you as clay. And when we get to this point where like, God, you just seem immoral, you seem unjust, I don't really like your decisions. This is where Paul's like, hey, you lump of mucky muck. <laughs> Thinking you're, you're like this unsentient piece of material trying to speak to the sentient one putting you together, thinking that he has no idea what he's doing. Paul's like, we, we, 
we can't even enter that conversation well. For us to act like we're the potter when we're really just a piece of clay. God is the one in charge. Will we treat him like it or no? And then Paul told us, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? He's got Pharaoh in mind. What if God put up with all the crap Pharaoh did in order to show an incredible amount of his glory and save all of the Hebrews? That story would explode so much so that all of the nations around the world at that time would have heard about it. God didn't just save the Hebrews in a legal battle. He saved the Hebrews in a story that no one could miss. To the point that as the Hebrews walk through the wilderness and get to the promised land, the kingdoms that they encounter, they already have seen how powerful this Yahweh is. And they're nervous as they come around. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. So Gentiles. They weren't before, but now they are. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. The Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, the Lord of hosts, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith? What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith? Gentiles who weren't in before are now in, as God has elected them and opened their ears. But that Israel, but that Israel who pursued a law that would not lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Final passage for you, again. The potter's stuff, God is potter, us is clay, comes up a lot throughout the Bible, but there's one story in which free will and God's sovereignty are clearly seen in the potter analogy. It's in Jeremiah 18. You can go home and read it later. In Jeremiah 18, God tells Jeremiah, I want you to go down to the local potter. So Jeremiah does. And he watches the potter, and as the potter is working on this this. This project, it kind of gets messed up. And so the potter takes the clay and he redoes it to turn it into something else. And here's what God says. I think of Joel. Joel's used to like seeing these like uh, more visionary type gifts where an analogy is visually in front of him and he sees what God's trying to communicate through that. This is what's happening for Jeremiah. Hey, Jeremiah, look at that pot. Watch that guy as he's fixing it and changing it. Now, here's the metaphor that I want you to have, Jeremiah. I'm going to give you words to speak over Israel. So you might go out and say, if you don't take care of the widows, I'm going to put a drought on you. And Jeremiah, if people actually listen to you and take care of the widows, then I won't bring the drought. 
just like that potter in his sovereign, well, in his metaphorical sovereignty, he's taking care of the clay, he can do whatever he wants with it. Just as that potter can change the plan out of his own desire and his own free will, so I, God, if I speak a prophetic word and people actually respond to it for once, I'll change the plan. It's free will and God's sovereignty at play all at the same time. And since Paul is quoting in Romans 9, it's just all quotes of Scripture, we should probably have Jeremiah in mind when he's talking about pottery. Pharaoh is like that pot. That could have been a beautiful pot. In his own free will, he could have done the right thing. He could have been a good political leader. The Pharaoh before him, though he was a pagan, was actually a, a pretty good guy in the end. He, he listened to Joseph. And he respected Joseph's God. But this new Pharaoh was the exact opposite. He didn't even know who Joseph was and didn't care. So as God sees this pot of Pharaohs that's getting weirder and weirder and more grotesque, in Jeremiah's analogy, it's more or less Paul kind of repositioning the idea of God taking that pot and smashing it on the floor. That pot wasn't good for anything. The evil in its heart was too great. God is a gracious God. God is a forgiving God. He's a loving God. But just like you don't like to put up with incredible evil, a good, good, good God doesn't like it either. And sometimes he will carry out his vengeance in his own way. Which is what you see in a passage like this. But the Bible also tells us that God wants all to be saved. That is the mission. Get out there, show the world who Jesus is, proclaim the good news, hope that God opens their ears and their hearts so that they'll come to him and that we'll see the salvations. Not that we have done, but that God has done by working through us. Today's passage is a weird one. It's a complicated one. And Paul quotes so much scripture, it's easy to forget where he's tracking. But just as he longs for his Israelite brothers and sisters to be saved, so in chapter 9 he gives a lot of reasons as to why God is the one in charge and we're not. And our job is to continue proclaiming the gospel, hoping that they will come, because God wills everybody to be saved. Let me pray for you. God, this is one of those passages uh, I'd probably much rather just skip and not preach. I imagine it's probably even a little boring to listen to. Uh, it's not filled with a bunch of fun anecdotes. And, uh, even the stories that I do share in light of it, they're not very happy stories. But as a pastor, I do struggle cherry-picking the verses that I want to preach because it just feels like cheating sometimes. Passages like today, uh, God, what I pray against is anyone in this room uh, falling into some kind of grief thinking that they're Pharaoh. Because they're not. Thinking that they are prejudged because they're not. As Christians, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. 
I pray against people thinking that their friends and family are prejudged in some kind of way because they're not because you will everyone to be saved. But in the end, when we face that question that every Christian faces of judgment and what will happen to those who uh, were unsaved, we also have a certain amount of verses in Romans 9 to go off of to recognize that you can't be immoral, that you can't mess up, that you are not a bad God. Now, sometimes when we see some weird things happen, when we see evil build up, sometimes it's not that you are you're causing that, but you are working in that even to bring about liberation, like you do with the slaves, the Hebrew slaves. And God, we can only hope. That once we are liberated, that our minds are liberated too. <sighs> what a glorious story for their freedom from Egypt. Yet most of what the Hebrews did after they were freed was live in a uh, Stockholm Syndrome. They wanted to go back to Egypt. How many times did they tell you in the wilderness it would have been better to just stay in Egypt? than to have been liberated. God, may we be liberated fully. And may we do the liberation that you've called us to do because that is the mission of Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news, to take away all of your sorrow and your mourning, to give the oil of joy and the garment of praise. If that's the mission of Jesus, to liberate, then it's ours too. So let us break people free of the bonds of Satan. Let us live the pacifistic ways of Jesus to soften the hearts of those around us that they might come to know you. May it happen here in Jackson, right now. God, there are a few in this room right now, and that might feel either humiliating or uh, de-energized. But God, I thought of Greenwood today. I remember reading a book on barbecue, and Greenwood is dangerous. If you throw dry wood in a fire, you know what to expect. But Greenwood, that burns longer and it burns hotter. And if you're not keeping a close eye on it and you throw too much in, it can burn the whole thing up and take the place down. God, I thought of metaphor on that. We are 1208 Greenwood, and we may just be a few people in here tonight, but like Greenwood, we can burn hotter and brighter and make a real difference. Maybe that's, maybe that's the calling that you're putting on us tonight. Maybe you don't need a bunch of dried up fuel and fire to try to get your, your passion and your fire in the church to just make it another day. 
Maybe you need some green wood, something that's explosive. Something that just takes off. Let us be that here on this block in Jackson. Save our neighbors. Would you point us to them? Would you elect them? Your will is for all to be saved. You are patient, waiting to bring about the end because you want more to be saved. Let us be obedient to your will in that way. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed from this building, but not from the mission of God. We will see you next Sunday, if not sooner. Have a wonderful week.